you have your copy of the scriptures, let me encourage you to turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4 will be where we will begin this morning. And I'll be making reference to a number of other passages as I have been over the past few weeks. Philippians 4 in particular, Philippians 4 verses 4 through 9. Back in 2019, there was a news story that broke and continued to break and continued to break, and that is scandal. Scandal over college admissions. Individuals attempting to manipulate the system in favor of their children, and in particular, individuals with means, substantial means, to see that their children got into the colleges of their, their favor. But it wasn't just the parents who were involved in this scheme. And many of you know what I'm referring to. The following comes from bestcolleges.com, kind of summarizing that whole ordeal. William Rick Singer, a California-based independent college admissions counselor, worked with wealthy families hoping to get their kids into top schools. Singer operated the Edge College and Career Network, known as The Key, his college counseling business, along with the Key Worldwide Foundation, a nonprofit he established as a charitable organization. From 2011 to 2019, Families Nationwide paid Singer a total of $25 million to guarantee their children admission to top-tier schools such as Stanford, Yale, USC, the University of Southern California, and Georgetown. The problem was that none of it was legal. Here's how the scam worked. A parent would donate a large sum, normally between $250,000 and $400,000, to Singer's Foundation and receive a tax benefit, since it was a con contribution to this supposed nonprofit, ostensibly to unlock the door to academic, social, personal, and career success for underprivileged youth. In reality, none of these students were actually athletes. Many had never played the sports they were being recruited for, so part of this scam was trying to get students who had never been involved in a sport onto an athletic team at a university. Many had never played the sports they were being recruited for. To circumvent that inconvenient problem, Singer would stage shots of these students participating in the sports in question or simply edit their faces onto existing photos of athletes in action. Coaches who represented lesser-known sports like sailing, fencing, water polo would then present these students as their recruits to admissions committees and advocate for their acceptance. If the students didn't have great SAT or ACT scores, Singer had an approach to cover up that, which involved arranging for and paying test proctors $10,000 to alter students' answers to ensure competitively high test scores. 
Administrators across the country were on the take, including the sailing coach at Stanford, the women's soccer coach at Yale, and an assistant athletic director at USC who was paid $20,000 per month for her work on Singer's behalf. The families involved in the bribes included several high-profile figures who all wanted the same thing for their children, guaranteed admission to an elite school. Never mind that their kids had all the advantages wealth and privilege confer. No, these parents wanted to circumvent the angst-ridden admissions process and fast-forward to guaranteed acceptance. Here's the question. What motivated these parents? There were a number of different individuals involved who had to see this thing work. But the question that I have for us this morning is, what motivated these parents? We could come up with a lot of possibilities, a number of possibilities. But I think the way that the the writer summarizes there at the end keys in on what was most likely a driving motivation for many of these parents. That angst-ridden process of college admission and acceptance. Angst-ridden, pointing to the reality that I think these parents were afraid. They were afraid on the one hand that their students wouldn't get into the school that they wanted to. They had the means to pay for them. They weren't concerned about their students getting scholarships. That was not the question. They wanted their their children to get into these elite universities, and they were concerned that on the basis of the students' credentials alone, they wouldn't get in, so they needed to act. But why was it so important to them that these students get into these high-profile universities? I think it was also fear. They were afraid about what the future would be like for their children if they didn't have the privilege of having a diploma from one of these prestigious institutions. I I think no small part of what motivated these parents was fear. And before we look down our nose too much at these individuals, we all have to admit that throughout our lives we are motivated and take action driven by fear, driven by concern, driven by anxiety. And that's what we've been considering, haven't we? And that's what we're, we're still thinking about this morning as we come back to this issue of fear, how we should think about it from a biblical perspective, and how we should respond to it. Last week, we had on our We had on the the screens, on the stream, and also in the bulletin. I didn't bring my copy up here with me, I don't think. But in your bulletin this morning, you have that purple handout again. You'll want that because we're going to keep working our way through that this morning. But last week, we considered there at the top of that handout this working definition of fear. And what we noticed, what we thought about, was the fact that fear really is comprised of three things. There is one, our response to whatever it is that we're afraid of. 
there is something that we value, that we treasure, either that we want to possess or that we are afraid of losing. But also, there is the reality of a threat to what it is that we want. So let's take those parents for a moment and consider what it was that they wanted. Thank you, Vince. Let's consider what was it that they wanted. They wanted their children to get into these schools, probably because they wanted what a diploma from such schools could potentially provide or doors that such a diploma could eventually open for their children. And what did they perceive as a threat to their children getting in? Well, the lack of some sort of resume that would be enough to gain them acceptance into these institutions. And so in their distress, they responded. They responded by partnering with Singer and doing what they needed to do to pay the people that they needed to pay to see that it was ensured that their students got in where they wanted them to get in. Motivated by fear, they responded because there was something that they wanted and they saw a threat and they wanted to neutralize in some way that threat. Now, this week, with those ideas in the background, our response, the reality of things that we want and we perceive threats or attacks on the things that we want, these things being behind fear, I want us to look more specifically at the direction, the direction that the Bible provides us for responding to such fears. Now, this, this is not in or on your handout, so maybe you want to, to write it down, but if we were to summarize the direction, the overall direction the Bible provides to us in responding to our fear, I think it can be summarized in this way. The Bible directs us to consider ourselves, what we value, and perceived threats. There are those three things. And to consider them in relation to Almighty God. To consider ourselves, the things that we want and are concerned about, the things that we are afraid are threatening to take from us something that we want or to hinder us obtaining what we want and to view all of these, not in light ultimately of ourselves, but in relation to almighty, all-knowing, majestic God. And that's the direction that we're going this morning, to think about our fear, our experiences, in relation to Almighty God. And the way that I think we can be helped in doing this is by recognizing our limitations and admitting our errors. Recognizing our limitations and admitting our errors. Let's read Philippians chapter 4 and then consider these things in a bit more detail. Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. 
Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So as we continue to strive to take to heart Paul's admonition to not be anxious, but with thanksgiving and by prayer and petition, make our requests known to God. This morning, I want us to think about this overall direction that the Bible provides. So, the Bible directs us to consider ourselves what we value and perceived threats in relation to Almighty God. We heard this actually in our scripture reading earlier. In Isaiah 41, verse 10, if you want to look there in your bulletin or in your copy of the Scriptures, what did God say to Israel? Did you notice in our Scripture reading how God was pointing to other people and how they try and strive to make themselves safe and secure, but He directed the attention of His people not to their efforts, not to their capacity to keep themselves from all harm, but he says, fear not. Why? For I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. What does God say to His people? Consider me. Consider my promises. And I would say, consider my promises, God says, in light of what it is that is causing you emotional distress. Consider those threats. Consider what you treasure. And consider them in light of who God is and the promises that He has made. Remember last week, we, as we walked through aspects of this definition, we thought about two stories from the Old Testament. Jacob returning home, but also that story of Israel and Goliath from 1 Samuel 17. And briefly, I want to return back there. You can turn to 1 Samuel 17 if you want to, or you can, you can just listen because we're not going to be there long. But we see this same idea of attention to God in the face of threats illustrated in that story in a response that we didn't get to last week. And that's the response of David. Remember, Goliath, the giant, is calling out to the Israelite army, send a man and let us battle. And if I beat him, you will become our servants. And if he defeats me, we will become your servants. And the Israelite army was dismayed. They were in distress because who can conquer such a one as this? 1 Samuel 17, picking up in verse 24, all the men of Israel 
when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine? What kind of threat is this that he should defy the armies of the living God? And then later, when David is actually there with Goliath, he says, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. In a way that none of the other men in Israel could, David could see the threat that stood before them in the presence of Goliath, but see him in comparison to the Lord of hosts. The one who had made enduring promises to his people. And David looked at that threat and he said... Not in light of me and my five little stones, but in light of the one true and living God. What is this before us? David saw his threat and what the nation of Israel was wanting at that time, but he saw them in light of who God is. And friends, that's how we must approach the things that trouble us in this life. And so what I want us to do for the next few moments is I want us to consider who we are, how that is exposed in our fear, and consider these things in light of who God is. Because as one theologian has said, we can only come to a knowledge, a true knowledge of who God is as we know ourselves better, and we can only truly know ourselves better as we truly know who God is. And so as we set these two things beside themselves, who we are, admitting, recognizing who we are, but right alongside that, recognizing who our great and glorious God is, then we are provided such helpful direction in responding to the things that frighten us in this life. So, recognizing our limitations. What are our limitations? Now, as we, as we think about the things that are exposed about us in our fear, I want us to have in the background of our mind that illustration that I used at the opening, and that is these parents who are concerned about the future of their children, but not just those who got caught and thrown in jail or had to, to pay fines for their illegal activity, but I want us, just by way of example, to consider also our own thoughts about our children or grandchildren or others whom we are concerned about. It's not just a matter of college and career that can strike us with fear, is it? We can look at moral decline in the world around us, and we are tempted to be afraid for the future, not only of ourselves, but of 
younger people whom we love and care about. Some are tempted, and some more than others, in relation to the future and especially for their children and grandchildren about fears related to government. And let me just say on this point, there's a lot that we could say even here, but let me just say this, friends, politicians know how to leverage our temptation to fear to their advantage. I'll leave it at, I'll leave it at that. There are things to be concerned about, as we have said, but people also know how to use these things to their advantage. But what about us? As we think about the future, think about perhaps the future for our children and grandchildren, what must we recognize? We must recognize that our knowledge is limited. Our knowledge about what will happen, whether later this afternoon or 20 years from now, is incredibly limited. We are not omniscient. Our knowledge of what we want and the extent to which they are ruling our hearts is limited. What we want for the future. We don't fully understand what it is that we want for the future. Our knowledge of what it is that threatens what we want for the future is limited. We just don't know everything about whatever we see as threatening the future. We don't always know what it is that we value or what we perceive as a threat. These things are important, what we want and threats to them, but we don't always even know what it is that we want and what is threatening them, but those things become exposed in our fear. We don't know with accuracy or precision what will or will not happen in the future. We cannot know fully God's specific purposes for our present or our future. Friends, we have to admit there is much, much more that we don't know than what we do know. And as we admit that we cannot know fully God's specific purposes for our present or our future, or the future for our children or grandchildren, we cannot know fully how God intends to use even threats to our desires or even the unmet desires themselves to shape us more into the image of Christ. He brings things into our lives, friends, to expose the things that we are treasuring too highly and we don't even recognize it. And He uses those threats. He doesn't always give us what we want because He knows what is best and He is committed to His work of making His children more like Christ. And our knowledge is limited. Our knowledge is limited of all of these things. But God's knowledge, God's knowledge is not limited. 1 John 3.20 For God is greater than our hearts, 
and He knows everything. God is greater than our hearts, and He knows everything. Our knowledge is limited. God's knowledge is unlimited. Our evaluation is also limited. Our evaluation of the threats, our evaluation of the things that we want and how much we need those things to be happy and how much our children need those things or those circumstances or certain arrangements in order to be happy and whole in the future. Our evaluation of the importance of these things is limited because we are not omniscient. Our imagination is limited of what life will be like if that threat hinders what it is that we want. If our children don't get into that school. If they don't get that job. If they marry that person. Our evaluation is limited. But God's evaluation is is not limited at all. Psalm 147.5 Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. His understanding, His knowledge of what it is that we need, His knowledge of what our priorities ought to be, His knowledge of what will make us more like Christ His knowledge is unlimited. And when it comes to the things that we want for ourselves and others and concern over what may hinder those things, friends, our knowledge is severely limited. Our evaluation is severely limited. But also our power. Our power is limited. When we are afraid, our imaginations fire, and we often, as we talked about last week, are thinking of ways, how can we guarantee that we can get this thing that we want, I can get my child into that school? Or what can I do to ensure that nothing will hinder this outcome that I want to see? Friends, we need to admit that we are not omnipotent we are not all powerful we cannot with absolute certainty be assured that we have the power or resources to eliminate every perceived threat we cannot be certain that we can perfectly protect what we want we do not possess the power or resources to ensure that our desired future what we want to happen either later today or next year or next decade we do not have the resources to guarantee that those things will come to pass but our god is in the heavens he does all that he pleases whatever pleases god he does and there is nothing there is nothing in all creation that can hinder his purposes because he is the almighty he is the all-powerful one our power is limited god's power is not we have limited attention 
we can only focus on a limited number of things at any one time. If you've done any public speaking, you know that it is possible to be speaking as I am now with also an ongoing conversation going on in the back of your mind, thinking about other things. But even if you can think about two things at one time, there is a limit to the number of things that any of us can give attention to at any one time. What does this matter with respect to our limits and our fear? Well, at least in part, it's this. Attention to giving our attention to that threat or whatever it is that we want and just being enraptured or being entranced with our gaze on either that threat or what it is that we're longing to see realized. That means there is a whole host of other things that we cannot give attention to, that we're not focusing on or thinking about. Why does this matter? This is not necessarily a bad thing. As we said a number of weeks ago, there are plenty of things in this world to be rightly and appropriately concerned about. And what I'm saying this morning, what I've been saying, is not to deny the fact that there are things that deserve appropriate concern and attention. But in our fear, we need to recognize that when we give attention to things that, to these threats or the things that we want, we are necessarily not attending to other things. And this can be a problem. This can be a problem, especially when our attention is so focused on the thing that we're afraid of that we are neglecting to be the kind of people that God has called us to be. When we are neglecting to love Him with heart, soul, mind, and strength. When we are falling short of loving others because our focus is so consumed on our heart's desire and what we think will make us or those around us happy. But friends, while our attention is limited, God's attention is not limited in the slightest. Isaiah 46, the end of verse 9 and chapter 10 and verse 10. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purposes. Friends, God knows it all, and He knows it all right now, and there is nothing that is lacking from His attention in your life or in my life. So while our attention may be captured by the things that are making us afraid, we need to remember that these threats, these things that we desire, do not bypass the attention of the Almighty God. Nor does the rest of your life and how He is at work making you, if your trust is in Christ, more and more like His Son, using even these challenges 
that are before you. God's attention is on it all. It is not limited in the slightest. When you go to the grocery store, there's often a sign, particularly on the express checkout, 15 items or less, a limitation on the number of items. And what happens if you accidentally, we're going to assume you do it accidentally, get in the speedy checkout, it says 15 items, but you've got 18. They're not going to kick you out of the store. Rarely are they going to say, you got to go to this other line. The worst thing that might happen to you is you might get a few sideways glances, like, uh, what are you thinking? I, I need to get home. It's important to know the limits. And it's important as we think about our fears to know what our limitations are. And these limitations, friends, that I've pointed out so far, none of them are wrong. None of them are moral or sinful. All of these things are aspects of the way that God has created us. He has created us to have limited knowledge. He has created us with limited power and abilities. He has created us with a limited capacity to give our attention to certain things. It's part of our humanity. And God's kindness is revealed in, to us in this. Because what does God do in creating us with our creaturely limitations? He creates us so that we are dependent upon Him. And our fears, the things that we want and the threats to them, are reminders that we are dependent upon the almighty, holy, loving, all-knowing God. But not only do we need to recognize our limits, we need to admit our errors. Because we can and we do sin, fall short, go astray in our errors. We need to admit that our imagination of the future can be incorrect. It can just be wrong. And friends, I would dare say that in the details, there's something that's always wrong in what we're imagining about the future. We don't always put it together entirely, completely. Our imagination can be incorrect because we're not omniscient. And because we cannot know all things, how we imagine what life will be like and how we are scared for what life will be like can be and often is wrong. And it's unreliable. But even though our knowledge of the future, our imagination about the future is, can be incorrect, God's knowledge of the future is never incorrect. It is always wholly accurate. Because of what we read earlier and other passages, 
God says that He declares the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done. God knows it all. Our knowledge can be incorrect. We think we know what will be best for us and for those we love. But what we believe will be best for us and those whom we're concerned about can be wrong. Because we don't know truly what it is that we need and ultimately what is in our best interest to the glory of God. We can be wrong in our understanding of the best way to possess or to protect what we want. What we think we know about what is threatening us can be wrong. What we believe, and maybe this is the most important, what we believe God wants for us or others now or in the future can be misguided. What we think, what we believe God definitively in the details wants for us or others in this life, now or in the future, friends, it can be misguided. Remember that story of Joseph and his brothers? His brothers thought they knew what was in their best interest. And that was to chuck their brother out, to get rid of him. Well, God knew that it was also in their best interest for them to get rid of their brother. But for very different reasons than they believed. Remember what Joseph said at the end of after his father had passed and his brothers came to him, concerned, in fear, that this one ruling now in Egypt, their brother, was going to retaliate against them? What did Joseph say? As for you, Genesis 50-20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God meant it for good. God knew what would be needed in the many years to come. And He knew how He was going to use Joseph even for the good of these evil-doing brothers. Our knowledge can be incorrect, but God's knowledge is perfect. Our evaluation can be incorrect. Not just limited, but wrong. We can overestimate our ability or the ability of others to protect or provide what we want. We can overestimate the power or likelihood of the threat. We can misinterpret the will of God for us in any situation. And we do not adequately account for God's character and promises in our evaluation. And this was Joseph's brother's problem. As for you, you meant evil against me. Their evaluation of what would be for their best was wrong. Their evaluation of what they truly needed was wrong. But God knew. Moreover, we can use our power incorrectly. We can use our strength and resources in an effort to do good, but in ways that actually ultimately harm rather than help. 
but not so with Almighty God. What He does and the way that He does it, according to the Scriptures, is always and ultimately for the good of His children. Even when we can't see it. Even when we can't understand it. And so we need to trust not in our own power, but in the power of God to accomplish His good purposes. But lastly, what we want can be disordered. What we want can be wrongly prioritized. And we're going to say more about this one next week as we then transition to our overall responses. But just briefly, we can want things for ourselves and others that, friends, we just shouldn't want. We can overvalue even good things. A college education is a good thing. But we can make that too high of a priority such that it becomes a demand and an object of our worship. We can treasure people and things to the point that we think that we cannot be happy without that object. Our desires are not inherently aligned with what God wants for us. Friends, what we want can be misguided, can be overblown, so that when we are afraid that what we want is not going to be realized or some threat is going to attack it, and we are then afraid, the problem could be that what it is that we're wanting, either we shouldn't be wanting or we are wanting it way too much, and it has become an object of our worship in our lives. No good tree bears bad fruit, Jesus says in Luke chapter 6. Nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked up from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Our treasures can be misguided because of indwelling sin. And this shows up in what we want and what we are afraid is going to hinder what we want for ourselves or others. But God's evaluation... God's values for you and for me, His desires for us, are never disordered. They are always perfect. Remember what Paul says in Romans 12 about the will of God? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. God's will is good. There is nothing wrong in it. It is perfect. It is complete. There is nothing missing from it that should be a part of it. But God's will is not only good and perfect, but it is also pleasing. 
It is what will bring true and everlasting joy. And friends, when in our fear we are confronted by our limitations and our errors, we need to remember that there is a good, holy, perfect God whose will is good, pleasing, and perfect. And the prayer of our hearts should be, God, conform the desires of my heart. Conform the priorities that I have for myself, for my children, for this world, so that they would be in line with your desires. Because I want what you want. And friends, I think this gives us a hint of what it means to not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, make your requests known to God. Next week, what I want us to do is to take these observations that we've made over the past few weeks about fear and think about what it looks like not just to recognize our limitations, not just to recognize our errors, but to respond in prayer and in devotion to God, even in the face of our anxieties. But once again, before I pray, if you're here this morning and you do not know the peace of Christ, you do not know the peace of God, friend, See in what I have said, what we've thought about, uh, about how the things that we want can be misordered. They can be misaligned with God's desires for us. Do you know why that is? For each of us have gone astray. We've all turned to our own way, the prophet Isaiah says. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And our fears can expose our sin. But Isaiah doesn't stop there. He gloriously continues, but he has laid on him the iniquities of us all. And friend, if you don't know Christ this morning, that's the attention that you need to give. That's where your attention needs to be directed even now. Flee to Christ. Come and know Christ. Know eternal rest of soul in Christ. The Lord Jesus said, Come to Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And that is, as He goes on to say, rest for your souls. And if you don't know what it is to know the soul rest that Jesus provides in forgiveness from sins, let's talk this morning. Let's talk this week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before You, Father, indeed, we are limited. We don't know all things. We don't always know what's in our best interest. We 
misevaluate, misprioritize things. Father, we are limited and we are prone to error. But Father, thank you that you have revealed the fact that you are unlimited. You are all-knowing. You are all-powerful. And you are wholly good. You never do anything wrong. And you desire only what is good and will be for ultimate good according to the counsel of your purposes and your will. So Father, help us even this week to recognize, to admit both our limitations and our errors. Father, help us to see how the things that are concerning our hearts expose these limitations, expose our errors. Father, help us to remember who You are, the promises that You have made, the fact that You have said to Your people, fear not, for I will be with You. I will uphold You with my righteous right hand. Father, help us this week to grow in resting in Your righteous right hand, in relying upon Your righteous right hand, in trusting that You know the future and You know what is best for us and what will chiefly bring You glory in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.